Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. One day Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth said. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you have shown earlier. You have not run after the younger men whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman has come to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did you go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter until you find out what happens next. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Well, this is kind of the steamy middle book of Ruth. This is the Mills and Boone Harlequin novel sort of moment on the threshing room floor. And I was kind of glad when they were doing the preaching series planning 
And I never know what I actually get to preach that I got Ruth chapter 3 because it's kind of the juicy bit, you know. And even though there's still the fulfilment of all the promise to come in Ruth chapter 4, there's something that goes down on the threshing room floor here that is stunning. And this morning I'm hoping that part of the revelation of what happened there in that floor will bless us this morning in some way. Let me just set the scene for you a little bit. It was commonplace at the end of the harvest time for, of course, all of the grain to be gathered and taking to the barns on the hill called threshing room, threshing room floors. There were stone bases on these floors and they were normally set on a hill high where the breezes could come. So the winnowing uh, fan of that breeze could sort of take the chaff off the outside of the grain as they smashed them onto the, onto the rocks. And this process was normally done by, by bashing them and throwing them in the air and it was hot, heavy work to be done. And the men would all take their grain up there at the end of their season and they'd watch over it because it was their grain. So they'd stay there. They'd sleep there around their grain so they could sort of watch over the, their, own, their yield of all of their hard labour for the year. And oftentimes, if you read the book of Hosea, it wasn't just a time of high morals. It was a time of eating, drinking to excess and prostitution. And so... The men would go, they'd be there for some time, they'd work hard, they'd sleep on top of the grain that they were working with and it was just kind of known that all kinds of debauchery happened on the hill at the end of the harvest. And so when Naomi says to Ruth, I want you to go to the threshing room floor and I want you to lay at the feet, I want you to uncover the feet of Boaz, Naomi was looking for something to happen between these two that would cause some kind of connection, spark some kind of future hope that would benefit their family. And Ruth, of course, says, yes, I'll go. Because her mother-in-law, she bound herself to her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law and her and that relationship was important to her. And so... We see Ruth now, a single woman, making her way up there at night time, waiting in the shadows for all of the work to be done, for the food to be eaten, for the drink to be drunk, and then she makes her move, according to Naomi's instructions. And there's a pivotal thing that's going on in Ruth's heart as she's making the move. We don't get a look into her thoughts on the way there, but we hear what she says and we know that something has shifted in her heart. Before we actually uncover that though, I'd love us just for a minute to consider this idea of the guardian redeemer or the kinsman redeemer that you saw in the scripture. And this will be unpacked a little bit more next week, so I don't want to particularly take all this away, but there were two scriptures that related to this idea of the kinsman redeemer. One is in Leviticus, the other is in Deuteronomy. You've got to understand that the Jews lived according to the Torah. And the Torah had also 613 different laws that governed how they served God and how they served each other, how their community should work. And these 613 laws talked about the civic duties that people had one to the other, how the nation should work together. And so in Leviticus, we see the first part of this journey, this first part of this Kinsman redeemer, and it says in Leviticus 25, verse 25, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, or in other words, in debt, he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. 
So if you got yourself into debt, someone in your family somewhere could come and redeem that debt off your life. You've got to understand that land was really important to the children of Israel because it was promised land. This was land that God had promised them when they were in Egypt. Every portion of the promise of land had been divvied up amongst the 12 tribes. Amongst the 12 tribes, there were elders, and amongst the elders, then were families. And amongst the families, there were subfamilies. And so you had all kinds of portions given to all different people. It was like, if you can imagine, this patchwork quilt of allocations right across a whole bunch of people, according to tribe, according to their, their particular family group. And so if you allocated some land, that land was your inheritance, not just for your future, but it came from God. God gave you the land. And so God wanted to protect you from being in slavery. And so the way He did it was He put into Levitical law to say that if you got into debt, if your business affairs didn't go well, your other family could buy your debt off the other person so you don't lose your land. Because you once were slaves and I don't want you back in slavery, God saying, I actually want you free. I don't want you to be in debt to anyone. I want you to own your land and work your land and trust me for the yield on the land and and have the feasts and do the Sabbaths and do the things I ask. And if you walk according to my law, I'll bless you. And your land will yield all the time. And you'll always have enough food in your barns. That was the promise of God. And so God didn't want debt. God didn't want slavery. The problem is, Boaz wasn't the nearest kinsman redeemer. And he said that. It's not me. There's one who's closer. There was one other problem too, and this is the other part of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5, this was the other part of the kinsman redeemer uh, sort of process. It says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family, Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So the widow, Naomi, had the right to have her husband's brother. But there was no husband's brother for Naomi. And Boaz was not the husband's brother of Naomi. And so Boaz was not the kinsman redeemer to redeem the land. He also wasn't really the kinsman redeemer to marry Naomi. She was old and past her years. And so Boaz really wasn't the suitable candidate. If anything was to happen with Boaz, he would have to be applying this very generously because he wasn't obligated to. And remember, he would have had to put his hand in his pocket to buy the land. He would have also then had to say to himself, I'm going to align myself with Ruth or Naomi now for the rest of of their lives and any children we have will not be my child, but will belong to that line of Elimelech. In other words, everything he did wouldn't be about him. It'd have to be about them. And he wasn't obligated to do it. But in spite of all that, Naomi's looking at Boaz as a possible hope. Next week, we're gonna sort of unpack a little bit more about that. And it reveals the hearts of two men, one who could have and one who didn't need to, and why, what happened in their hearts and how the grace of God is mirrored in this story so powerfully. What I love, though, is there's something that happened in two women's hearts. There's something that shifted in Naomi's heart and there's something that shifted in Ruth's heart. Let me just quickly look at Naomi. 
Naomi, we heard last week from Ben that, you know, she changed her name. She decided, no, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because I am bitter. I'm bitter because God's forgotten me. God has cursed me. God has turned his back on me. I no longer have the blessing of God over me. But she has a moment here when she starts thinking about all the things that have happened to Ruth in the last couple of weeks. And she starts to say this, wait a minute. I think God might be at work here. Because she'd sent Ruth out to the fields and, and it was just a random thing, really. She didn't send him to Boaz's field. She just sent him to the fields. But Ruth was led by God to Boaz's field. And Boaz, we heard last week, was generous to her to a fault. He protected her. He watched over her. Not just what you could glean, Ruth, you can take, but we'll give you some extra grain. You can go home full. And she went home with so much that when the, when the actual generosity of God walked in the door, Naomi said, Said, wait a minute, God's doing something. This is way beyond what I thought you'd bring home. Tell me the story. And as she's telling her the story, Naomi is realising that this Boaz is not just a generous man, but he's a good man. He's a man of God. He's a man who walks according to the law. He's a man of faith. And I feel when I read the story, Naomi's kind of saying, I think we've hit the jackpot. This guy's a good guy. What can we do to entrap him? Now, it may not be the right heart and it's certainly not the right strategy. But Boaz had kind of identified himself as a possible candidate to get them out of trouble. And so Naomi starts to say, Don't, I'm not Mara, wait a minute. God is at work here. Naomi's journey back into hope had begun with a thankful heart. Her heart had started to turn. Her heart had started to say, wait a minute, God is at work. In other words, it wasn't just providence, it wasn't just luck, it wasn't just a turn of fate, but she'd actually started to see that perhaps God had led her back home for such a time as this. You know what, in all of our stories, We've got a backstory at times that we can't explain. If you were to put Naomi on the stand here this morning and ask her for her testimony, and you were to say, tell me about your history when you were leading up to the point of the generosity. When you led up to the point where you realised in your heart that God was looking after you, can you explain all the years of loss? And she'd say, no, I can't. And I know if we went around this room today and I said to you, can you look back over your story and you know God is good and you know God is with you and you, know, and you love God with all your heart, but can you explain your years of loss? Can you explain the things that have happened to you? You and I would both say, because we've all got it in our story, I'd say, no, I can't explain it to you. And people can say, do you still believe that God is good? And I'd say, yes, I firmly believe that God is good. Can I explain the years of loss? No, I can't. I don't understand what happened there. There is a mystery in my walk of faith that will forever be a mystery until I meet him face to face. And I dare say you'll have one too. Some things in God we just never understand and this in this life. And I wish it was different. I wish we could explain it all. I thought there was a rational explanation for everything. I just found in life it's not. 
and we need to live with the mystery. But in the spite of the mystery, there's also a revelation that God is trying to get into our heart. And can I tell you this this morning, folks, we'll never hear the revelation without a thankful heart. And so the challenge of the Christian walk is, how do I maintain a thankfulness in spite of the loss I am experiencing? You say, that's a hard thing to do. I know, I know. Talk to Naomi about it. But the generosity of God walked in the door and she went, wait a minute. God's at work here. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not just gleaning from the field. That's uncanny generosity. That's, that's unnatural generosity. That's next level generosity. I don't know what's going on here, but God's doing something here. Wait a minute. Tell me about this man. Tell me about what happened. Tell me what's going on. What's going on? Something's happening. Something's stirring. And her heart starts to open. The blessing of God stirred thankfulness in Naomi. I think it was just the beginning of thankfulness, but it was thankfulness. Thankfulness protects me from focusing on my lack. It's easy to try and take everything that happens in our life and boil it down to a natural or physical or human explanation. But thankfulness protects me from focusing on that story and keeps me focusing on the God of my provision. Because in spite of how bad things are, there's always something good that God's doing. In spite of how bad things are, there is always something good that God is doing if we look for it. Thankfulness stops me from rehearsing my offences. Something interrupted the pattern of Naomi's pity party. Naomi was bitter and she, turned, she decided, I'm having a party and it's all about me. And I'm going to sit down and no one else is invited. It's just me. And I sit at the party because it's my pity and I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm going to sit in it for the rest of my life. Except generosity walked in the door. Wait a minute. God's at work here. Thankfulness stops me from rehearsing the reasons why I should stay offended with God. Thankfulness stops me from rehearsing the reasons I should stay offended with my fellow man. Thankfulness opens my heart to the possibility that actually God is at work in a broader place and if I can maintain a thankfulness, I might start to see what He's up to. It might chance to change my inner world. Thankfulness shifts my gaze away from fault-finding and criticism. Now, Amy was sitting in, the, in, in her pity party saying, God is at fault. God has left us. This is the curse of God. It's all about God. It's not anything we did. It's not the fact that we left the promised land. It's not the fact that we left the land that God had given us. We went to another land. We served other gods. We, we did other things. Interestingly, that didn't seem to come up. But it's all God that's cursed me. Thankfulness shifts my gaze away from fault-finding and criticism. Thankfulness creates the conditions for hope to emerge. You know, we need hope. We need hope. I reckon more than ever before in the world today, Christians need to be people that carry hope. Not that we need to feel that as a pressure or an obligation, but it's actually part of our discipleship journey. It's actually part of us showing the world what light looks like. That in spite of what can seem like difficult situations, there is an opportunity for hope. 
but we won't see it if we're not looking through the eyes of thankfulness. Gratitude does something inside us that opens our heart. And out of that gratitude, hope can start to form. It's why Paul is always saying to us, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, think on these things. Find them. Paul wasn't saying stuff's always going to go right. What Paul is saying is look for the noble. Look for the other things and meditate on that. Why do we need hope? Because without hope, we can't have faith. Out of hope, faith forms. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Hope is different to faith. Hope says God can do it, but faith says God has done it. And I agree with God. There's a difference. Hope says God can do it. I know He can. But faith hears from God and says God's already done it. I'm now believing Him. There's a difference. And the difference is in that word assurance. Assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's the difference between hope and faith. Assurance in the Greek really simply means title of possession. Assurance is a little bit like someone handing you a deed that's been signed by God and says, there you go, you have title property for this. Now, you may not have the thing yet. You may not actually have the property, the thing, the item, but here's your guarantee you've got it. It's just like having it. I've got an assurance now that I'm going to have it. Hope says God can. Faith says God has. I've got it. And now I start to live like God has told me I've got it. Faith assumes. Faith moves us from activity to inactivity. Wait a minute. Think about that for a minute. Faith moves us from striving to rest. Faith moves us from the place where I've got to do something to make this happen to know God has given me the deed and now I will rest. I have it. I have it. I don't have to, I don't have to do anything anymore because God's told me I've got it. It's like your salvation you have today. You sit here today. Many of us assured of the fact that Jesus is your saviour. He has a place for you. The reality is you can't do anything about it anyhow. You can't make it happen. You have to receive it. And once you've received it, you have it. Yeah. The assurance. God has got this. I want to ask you this morning, is it time to make the step along that pathway for you? Is it time to shift gears and move into thankfulness so thankfulness and gratitude can make way for hope, so that hope can make way for faith? It may not be the time for you or maybe the journey feels too far to go all the way to the place of faith in the situation you're in, but you can start with gratitude. Let your eyes start to see what is God doing? What is He already done? What can I be thankful for in spite of that which I am disappointed about? And so why Naomi's heart was repenting, because I reckon that's a process of repentance going on in Naomi. She gives some pretty bad advice to Ruth, but that's still repentance going on. Ruth 
is on a total surrender journey with God. Ruth has had everything ripped out from under her. Think about her journey. Ruth has lost her husband. She's lost her country. She's lost her birth family. She no longer serves the gods of her nation. Now we can sit here in church today and say, oh, that's good, that's a blessing. But for her, this is a new season of learning a whole new way of faith to a God that she's never grown up with. And Naomi is her only model of what that looks like. Not the best disciple, I don't think. Her status was a female. She was a widow. She was a foreigner. She was outside the family of Israel. Her future security was tenuous at best. It was tied to a mother-in-law who couldn't do anything and she had to do it all for her. And so her world has been ripped apart. But in spite of that, she's bonded herself to a mother-in-law. She's a good woman. And whilst last week Ben was saying us, to us ladies, you need to wait for your Boaz. Guys, wait for your Ruth. She's a good woman. She's a good woman, this Ruth. Just grab the hand of the Ruth you're sitting next to. Even if her name's Jane, just grab it anyway and say, you're my Ruth this morning. Now Naomi was asking her to give up one more thing, her dignity and her inner self-worth. What would you do? But something changed in the heart. Naomi said to her this, you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. Naomi was putting the power into Boaz's hands. Let Boaz tell you what to do. Somewhere between that advice and the threshing room floor and the moment when she got to speak to Boaz, Ruth reinterpreted the advice. She changed the script. And she didn't do it through the idea of entrapment. She actually spoke through the heart of covenant. And this is what she said. I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Now we can quickly skip past those words, but that word under your wing is a powerful word in the Torah. It's a powerful promise to the children of Israel. Under your wings, these are the words of God Himself to His people. God gave those words to His people. In, in um, Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4, God is speaking, He says to His people, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, God rescued his people on eagles' wings and then he placed them under the wings of his word, his Torah, his word of authority. The word Torah actually just means direction. God is giving directions for how his kingdom works. And he put them under the wings. And so the whole action of God is action of covenant. It's action of love. It's an action of a God who comes to his people, redeems his people, brings him to himself. And the idea of being under his wings is covenantal love language from God to his people. And so somewhere between Naomi's advice and Ruth arriving there, she says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to place a demand on Boaz for covenant. Not for lust and sex, 
not for entrapment, not for, I hope he gets me pregnant and then he's obligated to me. Far from it. I'm going to ask him to be my covenant now. Take me under your wings. Take me under your wings. And here's the thing. She doesn't surrender her body for sex. She surrenders her life to a covenant. And then she says to Boaz, I'm calling you up. Ladies, today, can I say this to you? One of the great opportunities I reckon that exists in a marriage relationship is how a man should serve his wife, love his wife as Jesus loved the church. But it's also how a woman can call her man up into covenant. Require something of him, his best, his best. Boaz, I'm calling you into your best life by asking you to be my covenant husband. And Boaz saw it. And that's what makes Boaz a great kinsman redeemer because he didn't just see a woman throwing herself at his feet. You heard the Scriptures before. You could have gone after the rich young ones, but you didn't. Here you are with me, the older guy, and you're calling me into covenant and I see the quality of who you are. The whole town is talking about the quality of who you are and I would do well to link myself with you. What a great story. What a great love story. And so Boaz says, wait, because no matter what happens by the end of the day today, I will settle this matter for you. We'll look at the rest of that story Next week, as we look at chapter four, stay tuned. <laughs> Get into life group. I just want to make a couple of points, though, about this attitude of surrender before we close. There's an attitude of surrender here in Ruth's heart. It's an incredible picture of what God calls each of us into. See, faith is just really total surrender. That's what faith really is. The struggle of faith is to progress our entire being, our mind, our will and emotions into a place of complete surrender with God. That's the challenge of faith. To shut my arguing mind, to quieten my troubled emotions, to allow my will to say, yes, Lord. That's the challenge of faith. It's the challenge of the pathway to surrender. And the reason we don't fully surrender oftentimes is that we doubt that we've heard it's God. We just don't know if we should. And so the challenge of faith is often the doubt of double-mindedness. I'm just not sure what God is saying. And when I'm unclear, I'm not able to fully surrender my heart. Confusion seems to block complete surrender. Confusion creates the state of anxiety and fear. We're unable to be fully surrendered from that place of uncertainty. And I've found confusion creates noise. Noise. Ever tried to pray? Ever tried to spend time with God and all you can hear is your own thoughts in your head? It's like your mind just won't stop thinking. And you desperately would love this mind to stop so that God could speak to your heart. This is the challenge of our Christian faith. This is the challenge of what God calls us into. God wants us to go to this place of rest, which is the place of full surrender. Peace is the receipt that you have fully surrendered to God. 
If I have peace, I've settled the matter. God is, the, God is on the throne. I serve Him. His Word is enough. My mind, will, and emotions have surrendered to that. I will be at peace. The fight of faith from then on is just maintaining the peace. I just maintain peace. I'm not shifting from the place that I am. God's given me this place. I'll stand on it. I'm going to stand right here. I'll stand there with peace in my heart. My heart wants to flutter. My heart wants to look to this and that. My heart wants to feel intimidated by circumstances, by challenge, by critical voices, others that would come. It happens to all of us, but I need to maintain the peace. And so prayer and worship helps me maintain the peace because God, you did tell me that. Yes, God, you did tell me that. I've received it from you. I remember now. And I will take the peace again as my receipt that you're with me. Peace. Peace, peace, peace. I would say there's often more Christians walking around out there without joy and peace than there needs to be because they are the calling cards of the Spirit of God. Joy and peace. Joy and peace. Joy and peace. They're the promise of our inheritance with God. It's proof that we're in an active trust connection with Him. This morning, I'd just love us to close our eyes and across this building if we can. I hope the musicians, if they'd come, the singers this morning. And I'd just love you to take a minute just to reflect on this. Where is your peace this morning? Where is your peace? See, the enemy can make his plans. He can come at you with whatever accusation, circumstances can rise against you. But even a whisper from God, if we know it's from God, will put that to flight. Because He is a majority. If God says yes and amen, then it is yes and amen. And I can put aside all of my concerns. I can now discipline my emotions. I can calm my mind. And I can sit in the peace of God and say, I receive it, God. I receive it. Now my walk of faith is not trying to believe God. My, God, my walk of faith is to maintain the peace that I believe God. The peace that passes all understanding. Where is your peace? Where is your peace? Because our God is great. Our God is big. Our God does mighty exploits. Our God turns around the unturnable situations. Our God brings hope into situations that feel hopeless. Our God has the capacity to look at things and to roar over your life in such a way that those people that oppose you, those things that oppose you, those circumstances that think they won't change, God's Word can change it tomorrow. And we must believe we walk with the God that's able to do that. And we hold on to Him until He does. We ask you this, what choice do we have? I'd rather trust in Him than me all day. I just love us this morning just to claim our promise. Husbands and wives, families, grandparents, business owners, 
ministry leaders, whatever your role is, and you're probably wearing multiple hats. What are the promises you know God's given you today? What are they? Remember them. Remember them. Remember them. Bring them back to mind. Stir your heart again. Stir your heart again that God is faithful to that promise. Stir your heart again. Surrender your heart again to that promise. Let me just pray. Father, this morning, we remember you as the God of promise. You are the God that has given us the land of faith, the promise of the land that you want us to occupy. The land that flows with milk and honey, the land that is filled with peace and joy. The land where you are faithful to us and we trust you and we wait for you as you are faithful to us. We are your people and you are our God. Father, we hang on to our promise. We remind our hearts again that the promise from you cannot fail. We stir our hearts again to know that. And like Ruth did, God, you are the God of covenant and we demand from the covenant that which you desire to already give us. Father, would you fill every life today with peace and hope, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.